Chapter 5 Grace A real work of grace is necessary to prepare to suffer for Christ. I have shown you that God sometimes puts His dearest people into very hard service for Him, and that it is an excellent thing to prepare ourselves to obey the call of God to it. Now I will show you what this preparation or readiness for suffering consists of, and how many things concur and contribute their assistance to this work. There is a twofold preparation for suffering. The one is habitual and the other is actual. Habitual readiness is the inclination of a soul to suffer anything for Christ. This inclination rises from the principles of grace infused into the soul. But just as fire has a natural inclination to ascend, but may be violently depressed and hindered so that it cannot actually ascend, so it may be in this case. Therefore, before we can be ready for sufferings as Paul was, there must, to this habitual readiness, be added an actual readiness in which grace rouses the heart out of its sleepy and dull habits, and awakens it to its work in a time of need, just as the lion is said to lash himself with his tail to rouse up his courage before he fights. The former is a remote power, the latter is a close and immediate power. I must handle the former in this chapter. You will learn that it requires a sound and real work of grace or conversion of the soul. Without this, I will make it evident to you, no one can be fit or ready to suffer as a Christian. Whatever stock of natural courage, moral principles, or common gifts of the Spirit are lodged in anyone's breast, it cannot, without special grace, ever fit him to suffer for Christ. If this work had not been really and soundly wrought on the heart of this blessed man, as indeed it was, Acts chapter 9 verses 3 through 5, he would have quickly fainted under his sufferings, and so will every soul sooner or later who does not suffer on the same principles that he did. The first principle is that no man can suffer for Christ until he is able to deny himself, Matthew chapter 16 verse 24. Self-denial naturally comes before sufferings. Beloved, in a time of suffering, the interests of Christ and of self meet like two men on a narrow bridge. One must of necessity go back or the other cannot pass on. If you cannot now deny self, you must deny Christ. The yoke and dominion of self must be cast off or else Christ's yoke and burden cannot be taken on. I confess that self may not only consist with but also be a motive to some kinds of sufferings. Ambition and applause may carry us far this way. Pride is a salamander that, it seems, can live in the flames of martyrdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. But to be a servant to self and a true sufferer for Christ is incompatible. Self may make you the devil's martyrs, but only grace can make you Christ's martyrs. We can be seemingly carried along for a while with such a high tide of zeal for Christ, but if self is the spring that feeds that zeal, those self-ends, like so many little ditches joined to the brink of a river, will so suck and draw away the water into themselves that the lofty stream will sink and come to nothing before it has run far. So then, it is necessary for self to be dethroned in the hearts of Christ's suffering servants. Only real grace disposes self and subjects its interest to Christ's, for sanctification is nothing else but the dethroning of the exalted self and the setting up of Christ's interest above it in the soul. It is what alters the property of all we have and superscribes it with a new title, Holiness to the Lord, Isaiah chapter 23 verse 18, Zechariah chapter 14 verses 20 through 21. From then on, we look at ourselves as not our own, but as belonging to another.
1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. We must neither live nor act ultimately for ourselves, but for Christ. Romans 14, verse 7, Hebrews 13, verses 7-8, through Philippians 1, verse 20. We are no longer proprietors, but stewards of all we have, and so determine on these terms to lay it out as will best serve our Master's ends and glory. All that we are or have is by grace subordinated to Christ, and if once subordinated, then no more opposed to Him. This is what makes us say, I do not care what becomes of me, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1, verse 20. By conversion, Christ enters the soul as an army enters an enemy's garrison by storm, and when He possesses it by grace, He then divides the whole spoil of self between Himself and His church. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. This, then, is the first thing that indicates the necessity of a work of grace to prepare the heart for sufferings. 2. The second is that it is evident that we can never be fit to suffer hard things for Christ until our spirits are enlarged, raised, and ennobled, so that we are able to despise dangers and look all difficulties in the face. Our weak and private spirit must be removed, and a public spirit must possess us. If we are of a feeble and timid spirit, every petty danger will daunt and sink us. Delicacy and tenderness are as unsuitable to a Christian as to a soldier. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. Those who intend to enter into the kingdom of God must resolve to make their way through that thicket of troubles between them and it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Those who want to be crowned with victory must stand and play the men as that word signifies. Scripture. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Look over all the sacred and human histories to see if you can find a man who ever honored Christ by suffering who was not of a raised and noble spirit, and, in some measure, able to despise both the enticements and threats of men. So it was with Moses, Hebrews 11, verse 27, our apostle, Acts 20, verse 24, and those three noble Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And the same heroic and brave spirit was found in the succeeding ages among the witnesses of Christ. When Emperor Valens attempted to draw Basil from the faith by offers of preferment, Basil told him to offer these things to children. When Valens threatened him with torments, Basil told him to threaten these things to your purple gallants that give themselves to pleasure and are afraid to die. The same Basil, relating the story of the forty martyrs, said that when great honors and preferments were offered to them to draw them from Christ, their answer was, Why offer you these small things of the world to us, O Emperor, when you know the whole world is despised by us? It was the same way with Martin Luther. Money could not tempt him, nor the fear of man daunt him. Let me, he said in his letter to John Stompitz, be accounted proud, covetous, a murderer, guilty of all vices, rather than of wicked silence and cowardice in the cause of Christ. You can see to what heights and holy greatness the spirits of suffering saints in all ages have been raised. But it is grace that so raises the spirits of men above all the smiles and honors, frowns and fears of men. No other principle but grace can do it. There is indeed a natural stoutness and generosity in some, which may carry them far. It is said of Alexander that when any great danger approached him, his courage would rise and he would say, Here is a danger fit for Alexander to encounter. Pompey, 
when dissuaded from a dangerous voyage, answered, It is necessary that I go, not that I live. But as this is fed only by a natural spring, it can carry a person no higher than nature and will flag at last. If applause and the observation of the world do not supply it, it quickly ebbs and fails. But grace raises us much higher and maintains that height even when there is nothing outside to encourage it when forsaken by all creatures and visible supports. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. It does this three ways. Grace gives the person who has it a view of far greater things that shrinks up all temporary things and makes them appear as just trifles and small matters. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. By grace, a person rises with Christ, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It sets him on high places, and from there, he looks down on things below as very poor and inconsiderable. The great cities of Campania seem but little spots to them that stand on the top of the Alps. Grace teaches us to value and measure all things by something other than we used to. We once measured life, liberty, riches, and honors by sense and time. They seemed great things, and it was hard to deny them or slight them. But now, we value and measure all by faith and eternity and esteem nothing great and excellent except what has a reference to the glory of God and an influence into eternity. Grace raises and ennobles the Spirit this way because it is the divine nature. It is the Spirit of Christ infused into a poor worm that makes a strange alteration on him and transforms him into another manner of person. There is as much difference between his spirit now and what it was as between the spirit of a child that is filled with small matters and preoccupied with toys and of a grave statesman that is daily employed with the grand affairs of a kingdom. 3. We can never suffer as Christians until our wills are subjected to the will of God. Those who suffer involuntarily and out of necessity, not out of choice, will have neither acceptance nor reward from God. The will must be subjected. We can never say, Thy will be done, until we can first say, Not my will. But only grace conquers and subjects the will of man to God's. Psalm 110, verse 3. This is what exalts God's authority in the soul and makes the heart stoop and tremble at His commands. It is what makes our will write its consent at the foot of every command and its assent under every order it receives from God. No sooner did grace enter into the soul of Paul than he cried out, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts chapter 9, verse 6. The will is to the soul what the wheels are to the chariot, and grace is to the will what oil is to those wheels. When we receive the Spirit of grace, we are said to receive an unction from the Holy One. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. And when the soul is made like the chariots of Aminadib, Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 12, it runs freely after the Lord. There is no delay when the wheels are greased, and cheerfully submits itself to the exact service. 4. We can never suffer as Christians until our hearts are composed, fixed, and determined to follow the Lord through all hazards and difficulties. As long as we hesitate and are unresolved about what to do, when we cannot decide whether to go forward or return again to the prosperous world and are at such a pause and stop in our way, we are very unfit for sufferings. All such divisions both weaken the soul and strengthen the temptation. The devil's work is more than half done already in such a soul, and he is now as unfit to endure hardship for Christ 
as a ship is to ride out a storm that has neither cable, anchor, nor ballast to hold and settle it, but lies at the mercy of every wave. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James chapter 1 verse 8. But it is grace, and nothing else, that brings the heart to a fixed resolution and settlement to follow the Lord. It is grace that establishes the heart, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9, and unites it to fear the name of God, Psalm 86 verse 11. This gathers all the streams into one channel. Then it runs with great strength and sweeps away all obstacles before it. Look at a wicked man who has sold himself to do wickedly. If he is set on any one design of sin, he pours out his whole heart and strength into the prosecution of that design. This is the ground of that saying, Let God deliver me from a man of only one design. He will do it to its resolution. So is it also in grace. If the heart is composed, fixed, and fully resolved for God, nothing will then stand before Him. It is here that much of a Christian's habitual fitness and ability to suffer lie. 5. We see further the necessity of saving grace in all sufferers for Christ when we consider that those who will run all risks for Christ need a continual supply of strength and refreshment from time to time. They must not depend on anything that is fallible, for what will they do when that stock is spent and they have no provision left to live on? Now all natural qualifications, all the common gifts of the Spirit are fallible and short-lived things. They are like a sweet flower worn as an ornament for a little while, but soon withers, or like a pond or brook created by a great fall of rain that quickly sinks and dries up because it is not fed by springs in the bottom as other fountain waters are. They cannot continue and hold out when sufferings come because there is no root to nourish and support. Matthew chapter 13, verse 21. The hypocrite will not always call on God. Job chapter 27, verse 10. Though they may keep company with Christ a few miles on this dirty way, they must turn back at last and shake hands for the last time with Him. John chapter 6, verse 66. These comets may seem to shine for a time among the stars, but when the earthly matter is spent, they must fall and lose their glory. But grace is an everlasting principle. It has springs in the bottom that never fail. It shall be in Him, says Christ, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John chapter 4, verse 14. The Spirit of God supplies it from time to time as need requires. It has daily incomes from heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. It is our union with Christ, the fountain of grace, that is the true ground of our constancy and long-suffering. 6. And last, although we may engage ourselves in sufferings without this real change by grace, we can never manage our sufferings like Christians without it. They will neither be honorable nor acceptable to God, nor beneficial and comfortable to ourselves or others unless they are performed from this principle of grace. If any principle other than grace drives your actions in religion, it will either cause you to decline sufferings for Christ, or if you are engaged in them, you will bring little honor to Christianity by your sufferings. They will either be spoiled by ill management, or your own pride will devour the praise and glory of them. I do not deny that a person without grace may suffer many hard things on the account of his profession of Christ, and suffer them all in vain. Scripture And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. 
Have ye suffered so many things in vain? Galatians chapter 3 verse 4. Although you may find many sweet promises made to those who suffer for Christ, you must consider that those pure and spiritual ends and motives by which men ought to be driven in their sufferings are always supposed and implied in all these promises that are made to the external action, and sometimes they are expressed. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16. To suffer as a Christian is to suffer from pure Christian principles and in a Christian manner, with traits such as meekness, patience, and self-denial, and only grace can enable you to do this. With all these reasons, I hope my attempt to prove to you the necessity of a work of grace to move on you before sufferings for religion come is performed to satisfaction.